What's up, people? We're back again, continuing uh, Spy Franchise Opener Month. And um, we're about to you know, talk about a movie that's a little bit better than the last one we just talked about, which will, I'm sure will be a crazy statement in accent. I like this movie more than the last one. Um, the last one that we actually haven't talked about yet? No, the one we have talked about. I Wait. think it's been... Than both, you're messing up the the both the, movies the canon this, timeline this of the show. The, this is better than both movies we previously talked about. Um, I don't know what Zach is not talking. better than uh, Mission Impossible, which you can say the name because the episodes are. It is. Out. It is better than Mission Impossible. No, I think it's slightly better. That's a horrible statement. We can, no, it's not. That's that's yeah, not true enough. Horrendous. I think it probably has better ratings than Mission Impossible. Um, Mission Impossible is probably the best we were talking about this month. I think it's maybe third best. I think I give it third. Um, it's, I mean, to be fair, I'm like, I, I'm, these are very small margins. Um, and the audience also does not care the fact that we're arguing about movies. We're going to rank know. our top five movies we're talking about this month in our third episode of the week. <laughs> yep, we're here. We're talking. Um, and we're talking Bourne. And in particular, the Bourne Identity and the Bourne Trilogy featuring Matt Damon as Jason Bourne based on the Robert Ludlum dolls from the 1980s, I believe. Um, yeah. You're mispronouncing his name, though. It's Jason Borney. There's a knee at the end. His name is Borne. Did you not? David David Webb, I believe. No, I watched it the whole time they said Borney. I don't know what you're doing. Uh, did you watch the Irish dub of the, 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 the Born Identity? No, I actually just watched it on subtitles and then had, like, uh, the, like, snap and read, read the subtitles out loud. <laughs> That's so weird. All right, before we jump all the way into our, you know, our movie of the day, let's do a little last letterbox movie. And I want to make uh, Zach go first. Zach, you finally caught up with a movie that I reviewed without you a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, you wanted to share your thoughts as well. Yeah, my life has just been, you know, in chaos and ruins. My life is fucking falling apart. It's not. Life is going fine. I just am moving, um, amongst other things. Um, so that's why I haven't been alone a couple episodes, which the timeline's going to make no sense when things are released or when I'm appearing and not appearing. That's just how shows are shot. Um, but it's not because I was against Luca. I really, really wanted to watch Luca. It just took me a while to get to it. And um, I, 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 I'm going to do some bragging in my new house. I have a, a nice projector screen. I've had a projector for a while, but I just projected on the wall. Um, but I got a screen now because I have no good wall. And, and it, was, it was just beautiful. It's a great at-home experience. Um, I watched Luca. It was the first movie I've been saving to be the first movie of my projector. Um, I wanted to talk about this um, as my last log on box because I am um, a lot higher than you and Nazario. Um, on Luca, I kind of like had the feeling that I would be um, just because the, the like European chill factor, I think of it all. I just find kind of lovely and relaxed. And I do think that I know you mentioned on the pod because I did listen to the pod um, that, you know, you don't see what kids would really like in it, but I do think it was still like just a little kiddish in general compared to other Pixar movies. There's a gentleness to it, um, which I think I just kind of fall for. There's just like, nice what did I say this? What did I say this? I don't think that sounds like something I said. That that kids might not find anything to like about Luca because I don't know. You said at some point. I think I, I think I, I think said I, that I, I think I said that I didn't think kids were going to find like toy interests or like future stuff yeah. in Luca. I think the yeah. movie as a whole I think works for kids because it is so simplistic. Yeah. And just like chill and like doesn't have any bigger stakes. 
One thing that you guys remarked about during your rankings, I think very much applies to Luca is that people are going in with these, the Pixar name and the brand attached to it. And it's creating some false expectations of the kind of movie it is. That's going to be this, you know, grander in its themes and its ideas than maybe of what it's giving. And I think that's giving an unfair um, lack of love. Right. I think this really does. Cause I think it is just, um, as I said, really relaxing and really lovely. And it captures that Italian, um, you know, seaside very beautifully. Um, there, I've seen some takes on Larry Box, Tom, the animation, um, lackluster board, and that's just like, oh, no take. that's a fucking horrible take. Um, because uh, even though the faces are not realistic, I think people started to, to attribute Pixar animation to something more realistic. Um, that's not what I think they're going for. It's a very like Italian, I and I'm kind of taking this from another podcast, so I don't want to take full claim, but there's a little like Pinocchio effect that they all seem like wooden boys. A lot of this movie to me seemed very stop motion because it seemed so textured and so tactile i felt like i could touch everything it didn't seem real but it felt like clay to me i felt like a play bin and i found that really beautiful um and just because i know this is the first segment i can't talk forever about luca but i i do have lots of thoughts i kind of regret not being on the show but um it's okay we can go you really skipped over the i think pretty like it's not even subtext because it, it, it's almost like fun text, but I guess the like, um, cause it is a coming out story. So there's a lot of homosexual subtext of it's a, it, it's a story of someone being comfortable with who they are and, and their parents being scared of them, you know, announcing them true selves to the, um, you know, com- community at large to the world, um, worried about how the world would judge them to when him and the other boy can kind of come out, you know, of the closet as sea monsters together and it's a great way great way for like kids to use as a metaphor and you know put through sea monsters but make that idea of acceptance and and bravery of being true to who you are and and faith and the people around you and hope that you can find the right community that will respect and love you and um which you know can sound a little you know it's been done before other things but i think done really beautifully here and i think the last scene especially i think you guys were really underrating um of him going out on the train it's like one of the best like coming of age endings because it truly is a kid finding you know himself and his freedom and them saying goodbye and him being on the train and they do the flash of him being a monster and then back you know to a kid for a little bit um they kind of created both of those identities being mixed together. It was really like the world welcoming him, just the animation that of the train going by with the sun shining. And it was all just really lovely, really lovely last 30 seconds to, I think, encapsulate all the themes. Um, I, 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 I didn't rate this like as high as I think. I think this is going to be one that sits well. This is going to be one that on rewatches does well. And I think history will be kind to Luca. I think once people get past the expectations of it needs to have soul and inside out um, kind of hard to express ideas about what it means to be alive. This is just more, um, you know, easier to discuss. It's not as elaborate in, it, in, in, in what it's trying to go for, a little more simplistic, and it doesn't make it bad. Um, and and we, I know you don't love Solo much, and I have some issues with Soul, and just because you're going for an elaborate theme doesn't make you better, because it's it can be hard to execute it. Um, Nope, I had soul real yes. low. So just because you have you know something a little more adult to say about existence doesn't make you better. And, and sometimes you just need something to be lovely and touching and emotional. So I like Luke a lot. 
Um, and I look forward to rewatching it. Um, let's see. I'll address some of that. Um, yeah, I do think it gets stuck with a little bit unfair. Um, I don't think I don't think it was hurt for me by the fact that I was expecting that. I just I don't know. For me, it didn't click as maybe as much emotionally as it did for you. But yeah, I think that it's really important that people understand that this is more in the vein of onward or brave than it is in the vein of you know. It's also Pixar so hard because like saying. Luca is my 17th Pixar movie is not saying Luca is at all bad. It's also just like, it's really hard to break that top 10. That top 10 is a lot of elite movies. Yeah. Um, I think this is my favorite since Wally. I was trying to think this since 2008. I'm not as high on love the past decade. Wow. That's a, that's a take. And the that's only like, one that can compete with it, which I know you would not agree with, but I'm a lot higher in the most people is Incredibles 2. I just find Incredibles 2 really funny. <laughs> I have Incredibles 2 as 11. I actually like Incredibles 2 quite a lot. So that, that might be, since so that and Luca find for my favorite the past decade, essentially. Uh, mine is is Toy Story 3 and Coco, I think are elite Pixar and my favorite two in the entire franchise. I need to rewatch Coco, but I had some issues with, um, well, one that came right after Book of the Dead, which I didn't even watch, but it just so much better though. Type, I know, but uh, I think some of the humor and some of the characters just were a little silly for me. But I know, I've, seen, I've seen both movies, and Coco to me pops, and yet Book of the is just like meh. Um, I don't know. I, I don't like giving a lot of. I think that Disney and Pixar doesn't deserve any credit for these like veiled um, LGBTQ stuff anymore because they keep cl they keep claiming, "Oh, look, it's the first gay character." I don't know. To me, it's they, just they, like that's why I think this works better because they're not explicitly make it's not as it, it's not as point. insulting as you know cruella or um she gay and cruella i haven't watched no it. there's like a gay person in cruella that's oh. like but it's one of those like background i haven't even seen the movie i just know from like reading reporting that there's like a background character that's gay and has to or like lefou or something it's not as insulting as that but like i don't know that's why I think this works better because it's almost more about being gay rather than just having a gay character. I just wish that I wish like the dramatically expresses that. I wish the transformations were um maybe bigger. I feel like that they're so slight at times that it doesn't feel like the movie is leaning into its message of acceptance and difference. Like I feel like the the sea monsters and the people look so similar. Like like even the sea monsters don't look that scary. So I don't really buy into the whole like, I don't necessarily need them to be horror monsters, but I wish that they were at least a little bit more odd and different in a way that could actually, I think, make that point play a little better. I think it's just kind of, I think they underplay it a little bit by making the sea monsters so people-like in the first place. Well, I mean, gay people, also pretty people-like. <laughs> yeah, but I don't... I think, I think, I think, I, yeah, you can. I think. I think that. I think reading that. I think reading into that is the total choice. I don't know if the movie's trying to say that. I think it explicitly is trying to say this. You do? Okay. I don't. I, I've. I've been. I've. I've seen like a lot of people talk about this, and I've never. Because it makes their friendships so connected as well that they, I don't think they're trying to make it a gay relationship. But you can kind of see that kind of that that attraction to the other character, which is maybe not a sexual attraction, but still an attraction to each other and being around each other, could have some. It is what pulls out these feelings of wanting the freedom. What pulls them out to being comfortable spreading out, which is. You know, could be a first crush, could be a first love. That's fair. Um, we didn't build it around a male friendship if you weren't trying to, like, have some ideas about homosexuality. 
I mean, but you also have a character that seems pretty heterosexual. Your main character seems to be interested in, in the female lead of the film. Seems like you are placing uh, traditional <laughs> ideas on these characters. Okay, but like he's a 13-year-old boy interested in a girl. I don't think I'm asking. I don't think I'm, I'm doing that much here. Um, shout out to, to Sasha Baron Cohen as Uncle Ugo. He's the best he's funny. He's the best yeah, character. There's, like, I think, quite a bit of really good jokes. He's thing. very funny when he falls when he's like starts dying because the oxygen they have to punch him in the heart. I mean, just the style of his character is just brilliant. The see throughness of him as an angler fish that's no his translucent skin. Yeah, it's all pretty fun. I looked it up. He, the The director's goal was to base the animation style on you know stop motion, hand drawn, and like the style of Hayao Miyazaki. So there's all those influences that are kind of converging into what definitely looks different. I and will she, say my my biggest compliment is it's it so looks different. great. It and looks it's different than other Pixar movies. Pixar started to get a house style kind of, where everything kind of looks similar to each other. And this one has a different take on, on how to do their animation. Yeah, I actually think that it's kind of cool because I feel like what Pixar started at was a place that made a bunch of different movies with a bunch of different subjects. And they also kind of all looked kind of different. Like if you go look at the, the first five, six Pixar movies, like there's a difference between them all. Um, but over time, yeah, they did get a little bit samey to the point where you're like, oh, you could just you could basically copy and paste characters from the background of one movie into the other one. That wouldn't really look that different. But yeah, Luca, um, I liked it. You liked it more than me, although you only give it half a star more. Um, yeah. It's a high. It's a high four for me. Okay. Um, yeah, Pixar's tough though. It's like there's just they have too many good movies. Um, being at 17 is not a reflection of like if you ranked other franchises that had 20 plus movies and you ranked something at 17, you'd probably be saying it's bad um, with Pixar or not because they're just really consistently at least good, um, even if they're not exemplary. But you know, just enjoy as we said on the podcast, just enjoy Luca for what it is, which is kind of just a fun little movie about you know a couple people competing in a ridiculous Italian uh, draft. It's also like 85 minutes and it just goes by quick. It really does. It really flies by. Like there's, it's not. There's not a movie that drags. Um, so I was almost gonna try to pull a weird move and try to talk about a TV show on last Letterbox movie, but then I realized you couldn't log it on Letterbox. What TV show you watch? You don't watch TV. Do you want me to talk about a TV show? Do you want me to talk? No, about I just want you to tell me what show you're watching. I finally watched season one of Stranger Things. Oh, okay, you don't need to talk about it. Sure. Okay. Um, That's oh, because you have a girlfriend. Is that why you watch Stranger Things? No, actually, my family wanted to watch it. They were forcing me to watch it. Um, <laughs> I've seen all three seasons, but yeah, I'm part of the way into season two. Um, it's a good show, although I don't get the eleven hype. I think Millie Bobby Brown is pretty forgettable. Um, that's my that's my. I my think that's like King Kong bias. No, honestly, I just like I find my when I'm watching the show, I think the storylines that are focused on her, I find myself just not interested in. I'm like, can we get that's back to Hopper? Take. Can we get back to the other kids? Really I, I just, weird take. I just don't find her very interesting. I, I'm I'm actually generally surprised by it because she's the one that everyone seems to talk about with the movie. Um, my actual last Letterbox movie is uh, Danny DeVito directed The War of the Roses, um, which is a movie I watched and is on Stars. In case anyone wants to check it out, it's kind of a it's a Kathleen Turner Michael Douglas film about a couple that kind of gets together, builds a life together, buys a house, builds his house up, and then at some point realizes they hate each other, and then um, go to war. And they are the Roses. Uh, Barbara and Oliver, and uh, they uh, go to war over the south. It's a kind of fun little movie. I didn't love it. Um, it feels like it never really gets out of second gear. Like it's enjoyable in the moments where it's in, but I feel like other movies have done the spouse spousal dispute while living together uh, thing in more interesting ways. 
I was like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not a Michael Douglas guy. Like, I think he's interesting in, in moments, but I, I've never, he's never fully worked for me. So. It's weird that he was like a major star and people found him sexy because he just always seems so greasy to me. Yeah. He's like, I get Kirk Douglas being a sex symbol, but I generally don't get Michael Douglas being a sex symbol. Like, yeah, Kirk Douglas, Kirk Douglas is like, I, I get it. He's this big, like, burly dude. He's kind of jacked. He like kind of ripped. He's like he's built in a way that no one of his era was. And Michael is weird because he's like the opposite. Like Kirk Douglas is the ripped guy in the 60s where male leads were not ripped. Yeah, and Michael, Michael Douglas is the non-ripped guy, is the non-ripped guy in the 80s, in the decade where every superstar actor was like 270 pounds with 2% body fat. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very um well this is you that thinks physical fitness is the only way to be attractive you have to be a that's, fucking that's heavyweight not what, I'm, that's not what i'm saying that's not what i'm saying um you don't have to be a fucking heavyweight i also just think he just like i don't he's kind of an odd looking person he's just has an interesting look that um i i have never looked at him like man michael jack is michael douglas is an attractive man he's just to me i don't really understand that no i think i'm better looking honestly i'm better looking than michael douglas I'll take that. Um, have you seen The War of the Roses? Um, I think I seen it as a kid. I definitely seen parts of it because I I, I I have vague memories of the heightened um, gimmicks of, of of their war. Um, but I think just on TV, I think my mom loved it, and that's why I was just on TV every now and then. Yes, and connection to Stranger Things. Sean Astin is their kid, um, like their seventeen year old son of this film. Um, so there you go. The War of the Roses. You know, sometimes you watch movies that. Uh, give you a lot to talk about and sometimes you watch movies that are just like things you watched and you kind of move on with your life after that um let's jump ahead let's talk about the born identity which is our uh our titular film our focus of the evening um uh, let's do a little plot summary you made me on the last episode or actually two episodes ago on the mission possible say that we should do these together yeah for the month we're gonna do, do this old married couple style. would you like this we need to start first or would you like to start first yeah you start first Okay, Jason Bourne is a spy found floating in the ocean, assumably off Greece, because these are uh, Greek fishermen. They pull him out of Not the water. What? That assassin. He's a spy. He's both. He's both. There's clearly espionage he's doing. He's not just killing people. An, an assassin would be purely killing. He's also doing... I think they like, call him an assassin in the movie. He calls himself an assassin, but I don't think he fully knows who he was. I think he calls himself, yeah, he calls himself an assassin when he just thinks that's all he's done. All right, back to the actual plot. He pulled him out of the water. They bring him into the ship. They're taking care of him, and they discover that he has bullet wounds in his back, and he has a um, bank account number, like, under the skin in his hip. So basically, like we all right, away, right away, we're like, okay, this guy is not a normal person who just fell off a fishing boat. Yeah. Um, and famously, because this film also gets now brought up in every psychology class ever, Jason Bourne is an example of, I believe they, I'm just going to just do a quick double check just to make sure I'm not incorrect here. Um, I don't want to screw this up because I do agree. Yes. He has, he's a famous example of retrograde amnesia, which is amnesia where you have forgot the events of the past. You're not having a trouble forming new memories or ability to remember new information, but he does have retrograde amnesia where he forgets yeah. the, his past events. One of the more like, actual realistic forms of it's actually really realistic yes 
because he does two things that are really interesting. One, he forgets like he forgets the information that is stored in memory, but he still has all the reflexes. He still has all like the built-in habits. He has all the the skills training he's experienced over his life. He can do things instinctively that he doesn't understand why he can do them. But he's forgetting the exact facts that you would forget if you're a person who had retrograde amnesia. So he doesn't know what he's doing. He gets dropped off on the mainland. He goes to this bank. He opens the bank vault. He goes. Why do I have like a gun, a bunch of money and like seven different passports? So this this further con- confuses it because he doesn't know who he is. And now he's got passports telling him he's seven different people. Then he goes to. Um, he goes to the, US, the, 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 the U.S. Embassy, the, U.S. Embassy. Yeah, embassy. Um, he gets into and, a fight. and the girls yelling at the counter. Bob, why won't you let yes. me go? Franca Potenti, who is Thank our female lead and is also really good in this film. Um, uh and is like, damn, there's a fine piece of man meat. Um, and then Matt Damon gets into a fight, runs up on the roof. He does a bunch of cool stunts where he like has to escape and figures out a way to trick people. And also like just freight up front kicks a dude in the balls, which is a good moment. Um, although I did like instinctively like wince when it happened. Um, and then he climbs down to the roof. He goes over to Marie Kreutz, who's played by Frank and Fenty. And he goes, hey, I'll give you $25,000 to drive me to Paris. Because he's realized at this point that... Um, he lives in Paris. It's I don't remember. The passports or something. It's from the passport. I don't know why. I guess they all have the same address. That's the only thing that that makes them similar. Um, yeah. So he goes. So she's like, all right, fine. Now there, he was like stationed out of, which is what we find out. Yeah, he's the Paris agent for um, Treadstone, which is a U.S. CIA program. Um, and she's basically like, uh, this is taking forever. Um, she basically is like, clearly having money problems, is in Europe, but like kind of doesn't have visas or anything she's a little bit of an illegal immigrant at this point yeah so that's why i think she's she more a wild like, card but she might have lived a, a kind of nomadic life just they call her gypsy at one out. point so like, i yeah. think that's clearly the intended um so she drives into paris they get to paris he has an apartment he goes up to the apartment there's like not really that much information there they get attacked by an assassin born kills the assassin um and uh, they have to run out of there. They leave there. They go to. Uh, they do a crazy car chase, which is really awesome, and uses a tiny car all over the streets. Um, and then they have to. They go to Marie's brother's house. Um, they get attacked by a second assassin played by. Um, called the professor. He's played by. Why am I blanking on this? Clive Owen. Born then basically says, get out of here, go. And he chases down um, the CIA office in Harris, which involves a Jack Conklin played by Chris Cooper and um, Julia Stiles playing uh, Mickey Parsons, who's like the floor, who's like the people on the ground there. It's not, a, not everything is expected. Actually, like, a lot, right? You skip them in the, have fucking in the apartment and then them breaking in through the window. I mean, I did not. I skipped. I did not skip that part. Yeah, I, I had an emergency at a kid. I skipped that part. I didn't skip that part. I said they went to the brothers. I said they got attacked by Clive Owen. I no, said this is before. Had, that's like the fucking end of the movie. No, but that's they get attacked in Paris by the guy coming yeah. through the window. Yeah. Then they escape. You, you did not mention that they fucked. Okay, my apologies. I I, just, I thought it was in, in. I thought it was just included that it's Matt freaking damon in the early 2000s um he's the hottest spy of all time it's not close um you said cutest spy of all time he's also real he's also real he's a real cutie he's got like a real cute smile Continue. Uh, 
Um, they basically Kaimo, and very importantly though says like uh, like look at what they make us do or something. Yes, which is and he's the and he's one of the real he started he's like the person that starts born realizing that there's more, it's not just him. There's more than one of these spies. Um, yeah. He basically he runs us because he's like, oh, like he's the same as me, and there's something connected, and right. And, and then he chases just... down Chris Cooper and Julia Stiles. He tells them he's out. He escapes, um, but starts to realize that this is bigger than everything. Um, Chris Cooper walks outside, gets assassinated. Brian Cox, who's basically the head of the agency, goes before um, some congressional Congress. Congressional committee and says, no, Treadstone's all dead. That's the program. We got rid of that. Let's talk about Blackfire. And that's clearly the, the hook for the next movie. Um, yeah. Really two movies. They don't do much with end supremacy. No, this is true. Blackfire is more of a but it's 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 a nod that there's more uh, stuff out there, which is why you start seeing some of the best characters. David's just there. Absolutely wasn't this. But we're not talking about him because he's not in this movie, unfortunately. Um so Let's talk about um, – oh, and then, of course, my apologies. Born finds Marie selling scooters somewhere in, like, some – It's India. I was assuming India because that's where they start in supremacy. No, it's Greece. It's Greece? Why are they in India in supremacy? Because they moved. They've had to move. Yeah, makes sense. Because they're being tracked. Um, let's talk about Jason Bourne, the character. Because last time we talked about we talked about, we talked about the previous franchises, and this one is actually very similar to Mission Impossible. So Robert Ludlum writes the Jason Bourne books in the 80s. There's like a ton of them. Like there's a ridiculous, he wrote them and then he died and then somebody else wrote them. And there's like a, there's currently like two waiting publications. There's like a bunch of different books. So actually, if you look at it, he wrote Identity, Supremacy, and Ultimatum. Now, they just basically use the titles for the movies. And then he, and then somebody else wrote Legacy. They did not use the stories. In these ones, in the Identity they use the idea that he wakes up and he's floating in the water. But then, like, Maria is an employee. Did you read these? And, no, I'm looking. I, I, read, I tried you, to read one of them. You should have read them all. I tried to, exactly. No, no. Honestly, I tried to read one of them. It was really boring. It was not that interesting. Um, because you're not over the age of 60. Dude, I like I like detective novels. I like Robert B. Parker's novels. I like um, Harlan <laughs> Coben. I enjoy this stuff. Mr. Grandpa. Yes, I know. Um, but there's you no know, like in the in the thing. The only thing that they took is really the title and the idea that he wakes up in the sea with gunshot wounds and doesn't have memory loss. But like, and then he figures out Marie's a character. But then there's like a, a message flashing through his mind. There's a contract killer known Carl's the Jackal. Marie works for the government of Canada. Um, there's like hostages. It's a completely different thing. So basically, when they made the movies. Um, they were like, yeah, we're just going to make these and we're not really going to use um, we're not really going to use the uh, the stuff. Uh, the only thing other included is they included some of uh, Lyman's recollections of his dad's memoirs related to um, Oliver North and like the Iron Contra stuff. So the Oliver North, the um, Chris Cooper character is somewhat based on Oliver North. Um, I don't know who that is. You talk about this like he's a common name. He's a he's a former um, military guy. He's a political commentator. I think he ran the NRA at one point. Um, yeah, he's. But he also has like um, 
yeah, he was involved with a bunch of arms sales and like he was involved in the Iron Contra scandals. Um, so basically, they did the Mission Impossible thing. to make this shorter than than quicker. Um, they basically did the Mission Impossible thing. They took the name of the character. They took the general idea that he has amnesia and they dropped him in. They took um, a couple other details and then they were basically like, yeah, we're gonna make our own things because like even after like. You know, if you go to the Wikipedia and read the Born Supremacy, like he's teaching Asian studies at a university in Maine. Like they didn't do anything close to that in the movies. They clearly I assume it has to be a lot more streamlined because there's really not tons of plot or definitely not like very little dialogue throughout this. They cannot fill up a book with having this movie. It's so much more about the action, the set pieces that cannot do yeah. the page book. This is definitely more about the action, the set pieces. It's about Damon being charming. It's about kind of the mystery of where he came from, which is actually, to be honest, I think a way more interesting story than like actually some kind of international conspiracy. It's way more interesting to follow one character trying to understand their own origins. Um, they made a television movie of the Born Identity in 1988 starring Richard Chamberlain. No idea. Um, yeah, Richard Chamberlain. Do we know Richard Chamberlain? No, I um, didn't know they made a TV movie. Yeah, they made one. It was clearly not very successful. Um, and then they just did this and they basically were like, yep, uh, we're gonna do this. And they tried to cast a bunch of people, including uh, Brad Pitt, who said, no, he's gonna do Spy Game. Um, it so good. No, it would not have been. It would have <laughs> been, been so good. It would have been so much worse. It would have been so much. The movie does not work with Brad Pitt. I don't think that's true. I think it works. He's more charming than Matt Damon is and he could do the quiet. I actually think he's, he's not so more charming. Good. I think he's not more charming than Damon. Think of him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He he's, plays the quiet. He's more physically, he's more physically stunning, as a, like a person. But I don't think he's more charming. Damon is like all charm. Um, I disagree. I don't, also just don't think you ever believe. Like Damon has to play this guy who doesn't really know who he is. I don't think Pitt plays that particularly effectively. Damon is charming while not knowing who he is. I think that's there is a little bit of like a puppy dog quality of like someone just got he has this innocence to realizing it. what the world is because that is the best part of the movie is him like being awakened to the skills that he has like starting with the fight scene in the park with the cops like yeah. oh shit what am i doing how can i do this the like instincts that come out just kind of shocking him that he pulls off really well because of that puppy dog quality that Matt Damon is and famously they tried to cost tom cruise which i also think would be a terrible choice um because yeah. I think I think I think there is something to Damon where like you have like he has this innocence of a person who doesn't know who he is, but then yeah. th then it's like wait he just took two guns away from people and put four guys in the hospital and he, he did it without even trying. I think especially I think in this part why I think it gets better with Ultimatum, as I do think young pretty man Damon is a little unbelievable as someone that would be this competent of a an, an intimidating spy. He's just like too. Really, I don't. I Pretty and chill. Yeah, I think he's a little too like nice boyish, even his performance. Um, oh, and this is one of my major issues with the kind of franchise in general. Is I guess he was like programmed, but you know when they get to Ultimatum, we're just spoiling all the franchise at this point. So when they get to Ultimatum, and he did, he finds out he like volunteered for this, right? He's you know willing to be part of this. Um, you never. Um, he makes such a moralistic switch from when he overcomes the amnesia that I think that there has to be something inherent to who he is that would be less his complete moral opposite, less the do-gooder, how can someone live this life of an assassin regretting all the murders he'd done? There had to be something 
still deep down in his soul that made him willing to become this assassin and this murderer that I think they just avoid. I don't think amnesia gets rid of everything you've become. I guess it's a, almost a commentary, or well, I don't think it's trying to be, but it can be a commentary on, um, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on the sociological term of nurture versus nature mm. to where he forgot all the nurture. See, I so think it, he became a completely different moralistic person when then maybe it was the, it was the nurture that made him the assassin and the you know kind of moralistic monster that he see, kind of was in his real life. See, I disagree with this. I think what happens is he joined this special force because he was a patriot because he believed in protecting America and this is like a very old timey value of that and I think the idea in his mind was that all the things he was doing was keep old people safe and I think what the amnesia and the actions that happened in the identity do is they break his they're like the last tipping point of him realizing that maybe all the stuff he was doing was actually not. How's um, that to the point? He doesn't remember these things he did. How's he, he, does, but he does learn them all throughout the film. And he starts remembering them. But he's also experiencing his memories almost. There's a break cognitively. And he gets, then he, the memories regain over time. But he has to experience, he experiences them differently than when he initially had them as the person who went into that boat to assassinate Wombosi. I, I think they're laying the twist. The, the, what you find out about the assassination attempt um, do a lot of the legwork. I think him seeing the kid, they let you think, which one, I believe that him seeing the kid and not wanting to murder him there could change his whole perspective of his career. Yes. But when you have amnesia, forget that. I don't think it automatically sticks and will like keep you and make you a whole different, you know, have a whole different value set than you had before because you maybe deep, deep, deep down subconsciously you remember this child. Thing. But he doesn't have amnesia. Yeah, I guess it makes sense, but I think it's a lot that they're a lot of weight they're putting on that one moment to evolve that character's change. I don't know. I think that the arc actually works really effectively. I think that they the amnesia gives him a, almost a new start, but then he starts remembering it. So I think it's it, it's also not permanent amnesia. So like he has he has only he, it is short term retrograde amnesia. Like he doesn't have it permanently. It starts to come back, and I think that that. In that scenario, you're forced to readdress the same memories and that the way you would have thought about them. So I think that he was just the good soldier for so long. And then by giving this break and then a period without the memories and then they start coming back, he's forced to further grapple with the events he was doing rather than just being able to continue in the cycle of, yes, sir, protect my country, do this action, protect my country. Yes, sir, do this action, protect my country, which I think that is where the character in like any sort of like military type personnel in a situation like this does get more stuck into. But let's talk about the film rather than the whole franchise, because we want to talk more about this one. Let's talk about this as an introduction, because I think that's I think this what this movie is so good at is serving as an introduction for a character. And I think the idea of doing um, amnesia, using amnesia, really helps you as the audience and makes this character so accessible because you are at the same level as the character. When he gets pulled out of the water, you're at the same level of the character. Like, why does he have, you know, these bullet wounds? Why does he have this bank account number in his hip? Why is he this person? Like, you get to experience along with him his ability to, like, take weapons away from people or fight or all these things he can he can do. And I think that makes it such an interesting um, avenue into the character that just doesn't exist in other spy, spy franchises. Every other spy franchise you jump into, the character already knows how to do this stuff. 
and you're learning about all the stuff this character knows. And this one is like the one franchise where you and the character are learning at the same time. Yeah, it's the surprise aspect of it. That is definitely what makes this state um stand separate from you know james bond which i think especially the newer james bonds i think is what it probably has the most in common with i and think how this you, I how think you make this character interesting and what a new you know spy version of it i mean being american it's like let's make him like also be in the discovery mode you also have to give a lot of credit to this movie this movie changed the born the bond franchise this is the it's movie dead. if you look at casino royale and the new daniel craig movies they do. Not, they have more in common with Matt Damon and Jason Bourne than they do with any of the previous Bond franchises. A little bit um, the '80s stuff, but not as uh, I'm like Dalton. They have a little bit with Dalton, but really a lot of the what's happening in the first Craig and Christina Royale, which we will discuss upcoming up. There are so. No, I didn't say it right. You usually get mad at me when I do that, though. It's the it's the next episode. I don't have problems spoiling the one more. Um, there's a lot in common between the two films. It is underrated how influential you know this movie is on changing the spy franchise. It's almost the like Dark Knight was to superhero movies, this was to spy movies and action movies to make it more gritty and grounded. And the shaky cam became such a you know big aspect of action movie. That's in the next movies, but um, yeah, but it took the this movie you know takes the Europeanness of James Bond. Um, I think that's where a lot, and that's where a lot of the influence I think comes from, or my connection between that is. But once again, the difference is it's James Bond. If James Bond forgot who he was, it's like shit. Who knows that I like kick ass, fuck women, and, and drink martinis, and he discovers those at once. And it's sort of a spy for the new age, where it's like this guy is not a dude wearing a suit. He's not a person with a bunch of fancy gadgets who can't do his own stuff. He's a guy who goes into buildings and takes radios from people and like takes guns from people and climbs out of buildings. Like he does a lot of the stuff himself. And I have to get, and I think one of the reasons this works so well is Matt Damon does almost all his own stunts. He does the stunt where he's climbing off the building. Like he does stunts where like he does a ridiculous amount of stunts in this film. Um, and he like trained for months in different martial arts so he could do the fight scenes. Like, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, there's that, there's the famous scene, there's a scene in the 40 year old version where the, this movie is on the TV screen in um, uh, the, the, like their, their, whatever their workplace. And Paul Rudd goes, you know, I used to think um, Matt Damon was a bit of a, the cute, the gay slur, uh, but you know, he's really kicking ass in this one. And, it does kind of also change Damon's persona a little bit because this is kind of his first action movie. And like now it's not surprising to see Damon in sort of an action-y drama film. Like that's not that surprising anymore, but like this is kind of a, a new role for Damon. And I think he just inhabits the role so well. Like he does have, he does have a face that you would not believe as a spy, but then I think his physicality backs it up. Like he seems like an athlete. And he is kind of a stocky. Like he's has like broader shoulders, especially as he got older. Yeah, I he gets definitely bigger, more, a little more intimidating. But they also do a really good job, I think, making it really clear to everyone that this guy can a hundred percent handle himself. Like they take opportunities to be like, he's not only clearly very smart and has a lot of these interesting instincts, like he can do a lot of stuff, but he's also like physically very capable. And they, they stress that capability a lot in a way that makes you go, okay, yeah, no, I now believe that this guy, even though he is a little bit of a baby face, is is this kind of badass. Well. And maybe that's what makes sense with the casting. Um, because we I, I already compared him to Bond, but really he's like Bond meets Sherlock Holmes. Like he is a lot more intuitive um, and, you know, observational. 
um, mm. than, than than James Bond is, which is the Sherlock Holmes aspect. So I think from the you know the Goodwill Hunting that has a genius quality, we started to relate this kind of intelligence with Matt Damon and Mr. Ripley, to his roles, talented Mr. Ripley, that there is this this acuteness. Um, that we associate. So why not get someone who one physically can handle himself, but also audiences have gone to relate a certain amount of trust in their intelligence. They can believe that he's going to be, you know, so aware of everything happening around them. He's also just like, he's really easy to root for. Matt Damon as an actor is just really easy to root for because he's not only charming and attractive, but he also has this like sort of everyman quality where he does seem a little, he doesn't seem as aloof as people like Pitt or Cruz do. We're like, they're attractive guys, but they don't really seem like you'd ever see them at like a sports game or in a bar. Matt Damon does have that quality where like he is a, he is a big time movie star, but you also think you could walk into a sports bar in Boston and Matt Damon would be hanging out. Um, he has that weird like ability to transcend like huge superstar, but also has like a real kind of yeah. everybody quality. He's you like, can see him show up at the boy bar. next door quality. He does. He really does. Like he yeah. could show up at your barbecue and you would not be that surprised that Matt Damon showed up at your barbecue because he just would look like somebody who would show up at your barbecue. Um, we didn't mention in our plot description, like one of the, one of an interesting, uh, it, it's not a particularly interesting to the plot, but it is interesting as commentary is this idea of um, Wambosi, who is uh, the like, African warlord who has been taken in and out of power by the U.S., played by Adewale um, Ikunai Ajbaji. I'm hoping the president. Is he a great. warlord? I thought they just said president. I th I'm pretty sure he was a warlord, um, or he was a warlord president, or something like that. You know how those sometimes uh, African nations they yeah. go from warlord to president. I just don't want to make, you know, um, generic ideas of what it might be. Yeah. He is interesting, though, as a commentary because it is very, very U.S. thing throughout our history that we often build up people to be in power because we don't like who's in power. And then the people we've built up become murderous terrorists or crazy, you know, human rights violators. Like this has happened a lot of time where we've like are, we've handpicked leaders and then it is just blown up in our face terribly um, in a way that just. Doesn't it's an interesting framing because they don't make him into a villain really at all, really more of a victim, especially with that last scene. It, it, he was just framing for the operation, kind of being a villain. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think the big, the reason, and, and interesting that the reason they want to kill him is not that he was a dictator in Africa; it's that he was a dictator in Africa who was going to write a book naming names about CIA contacts in Africa, like. There is an interesting thing where it's like it's not he's not became a security a, risk, essentially. Yeah, he's he's more of a he's more of a liability than he is like an actual threat because he's out of power and is basically like either put me back in power or you know I'm. Gonna, I mean, throughout this yeah. franchise, it makes these agencies mostly just seem um, about self interest and. and you know, defensive in a way. It's never about trying to make the world better as much as trying to protect the reputation of the agency specifically. And that's, I think, just a specific route to make them kind of the antagonist of the thing. And 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 why they bring Joan Allen in to be the counteraction of what the like um, positive outlook of that agency can be. There's so much banging happening in my house, and that convinces this roof is going to fall in my head. <laughs> If it does, if it does, I'll continue podcast. You don't know what Sarah is doing upstairs. 
Yes. I mean, I have to give some, I mean, the best part of Joan Allen coming in is that we also get um, David Strathairn, who is just in the, the third film. The best villain of the movies. He's so good. He's also just like David Strathairn is one of those people that you're like, yes, I 100% believe you work for a government agency. Like he just, the way he speaks, you're like, yep. Yeah, no, Joan Allen is an important piece, I think, is what's missing his movie, which is, uh, I guess you have it with his girlfriend here, but a companion hero in a way. Someone who, you know, working on the opposite side, but maybe can provide the route to answers and that, that I think Jason Bourne needs. Well, also, um, I think Julia Stiles becomes that in some of the later films. Where like okay, That character is such a failure, so I don't, maybe they try to make it, but there's such a yeah. I think she. I think she works for what she's doing. I don't this, think the character. I think I she's think, fine in this movie because they don't make her a bigger character. Because she's really just you know part of the operation and, and just barely part of it. But once they try to act like she was always a bigger part of the story, is when it becomes, um, I think, a little odd. Because really, she's just someone like on the phone and <laughs> trying to connect in this. Basically, right. she thank character Michelle Monaghan of it who plays I think in Supremacy, which is just there i think she's even less than monahan is like the number two to somebody who's actually big at see she's basically just a station agent like that's basically her job her job is to like interact with the people and help them out um, it's weird like they get to the future movies like, we gotta bring back everything people like like matt damon um let's bring back you know antagonists in the agency and julia styles everyone loved julia styles in the first movie she's <laughs> really bad she's really bad in jason Bourne. um um, I mean, I think the character gets worse. I think her performance in this is still not great. Because I think she just lacks the authority to have that kind of meaningless operative role, someone that just delivers lines. And she just doesn't deliver it really believably. Because the, the character has nothing to do, but she doesn't know how to just be a presence. I think she needs a little more to work with to be a, a interesting presence. Well, I think also like she's given a thankless role, which is she's totally a pawn in everybody else's thing. Like but there's people that can do that and still be engaging. Sure, sure. You know, so random people appearing as like research technicians. Walton Goggins yeah. and Josh Hamilton both appear yeah. as research technicians in this film. Well, different uh, levels of their career, which is weird. Bourne has a lot of people who are barely part of the movie and then became a lot bigger later, and also have a second class of people who like seem like they're on the rise and it amount to nothing, like Famke Patente. Um, this is soon after Run the Low Run, right? And then I it, believe so. Yeah, she never fully make. I mean, it's really hard for European actresses um, to make the transition pretty successfully. This is four years after Run the Low Run, and this was really all that she was able to do. But think of all the European actresses, the non-English speaking European actresses. Just the like Marion Cotillard was very successful, and other than that, Audrey Tattoo kind of failed. They could have. Um, um, girl with the dragon tattoo. I'm blanking her name. Oh, um, why am I blanking on this too? Yeah, me too. She was in Prometheus. Either way, it, um, very difficult to make the transition. And Fab Group Patente was part of that. But there's someone else I also I felt like was or Julia Sells. Like she was in the private career, then never amounted to much more after that. So interesting two classes of. Nomi Rapachi is the girl from the dragon tattoo. Yeah, but you know, there is this is true. And like if you look at her career, she has. This she has run another run, and then like, if you go through her, the only thing recently that I've even heard of is she's in The Conjuring Two. In a like, she's in The Conjuring Two. She's in The Conjuring Two in a very small. 
<laughs> no, she's like she's like a friend of the couple that's of the family that's being haunted or something. She's like conjuring. That. She's the conjuring. I remember it's like she plays. Oh, she's like no, she's a she's like a, a skeptic of the whole devil thing. That is that her role title? Because I hope so. There has to be like a lot of horror movies. No, she plays a she plays a real skeptic. life person. She plays a real life person named Anita Gregory, who's like this German psychologist, physical like something who is against all this stuff. So that's her role in that. Um, I do think that, so I really like this film, but I will say that the area where this one fails in comparison to its sequels is I don't think Cooper and Brian Cox are as interesting as the characters that would come later. I also think that Alan Cooper and Strick there. I think Cooper is so good. That's why well, I like him, but he's given example much of, of, yeah, he's not given much to do, but he has such presence and authority that I think is what Styles lacks. It makes him constantly watchable. And, um, I think like villainous with ever without ever really being truly villainy. His acts are never horrible. They're horrible when you find out about Blackbar and find out what you do in supremacy that he also might have been like taking money um, with Cox. Um, but in this movie, he we'll get to this. My biggest issue with the movie, um, but like he's not even doing horrible. It's all like a big misunderstanding but the way he appears in presence and, and the way he handles the situation is villainous just the like the abruptness and the, the bluntness that he handles with everything and, and not really patient or you know have any idea of empathy is villainous rather than the actions and that's all within his performance i think it's also just like he in some ways is less villainous than the other characters. He's just sort of doing his job. Like if you, from his perspective, Bourne is, for our perspective as the audience, Bourne is the is the character we're following. From his perspective, he's a complete rogue agent who just randomly we thought was dead and then showed up and is not following any of the, like the orders he's supposed to be doing. Like if you're in his position, that's the only choice you have is to do what he was trying to do. Um, and I think like, I think the biggest thing- I don't know if that's true. <laughs> No, but it, 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 he's it, hyper aggressive about it, and I and I think the way Joan Allen handles it shows it's not true because she's able to make a little more amends with Bourne. She's the counteraction of what Chris Cooper brought to it. She's the opposite to come in and be a little more patient and open about the situation rather than I, fucking things up because of a misunderstanding. But I don't think you could be as patient in opening right after he's reemerged. I think that's a more of a crisis period. Joan Allen gets to come to a period where. It's well, she's always still a little more distant from the situation because Cooper was more directly because it also related to the failed operation that he sent. Him. Right. He specifically sent Bourne on this operation. And he's also then assassinated because he failed on this operation and failed to stop Bourne. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing that comes out of Cooper is that they realize in the future films they need to give Joan Allen and then David Strathairn bigger roles. Because I think that they realize that that villain character is really cool as a counterbalance to Bourne, but also um, just needs a little bit more time. Another character that kind of um, helps them figure out the franchise in a different way is that Clive Owen appears as the professor. He's another one of the assassins. And because has a rope of the yeah. franchise. Right, but he, the difference is in this one, he's this small part that has one shootout with Bourne and then also tries to and, and tries to assassinate um, Wombosi. But and then in Freakier films, you know, this becomes Carl Orban, this becomes... Um, Edgar um, Martinez, or not? No, no, it's not Ramirez. The guy who really becomes is it becomes Ramirez. It also becomes, Ramirez. becomes Joey Ansa playing Desh. But like this is a like this becomes. I think her. 
you're overrating how big those roles have been. I still think Clive Owens probably the most important of all three of those roles. I think no. the the Russian no, guy. Urban is definitely Urban is definitely, but Urban not definitely. either of the ones in Ultimatum. They don't even have a line. No, but they have they, well, they have more of an impact in terms of like story wise. Their actual actions, yes, are bigger than than the actions of Clive Owen, who basically appears in like one small shootout scene. I think he's the most important story wise because he's the one who actually talks to Damon and opens him up to what you know the world of um, whatever the town. What is it called? Temple Stone. Stone. Treadstone. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he he's he's kind of sprinkles the breadcrumbs for him to get to Treadstone. So he's the most important for the plot development, but also for the empathy of those characters because it's the first time you see another one being like, it's not us. Like, we were fucked. Like, we are mm-hmm. part of the system. So I think he's the most important of all the antagonists. And good thing there, Clive Owen, because Clive Owen is great in that scene, I think. It is a very bizarre role. I'm like, I don't know what his... his um... Oh, he's another one. That's just about, like, to become a bigger thing. And he also disappeared, but... This is right, you know, him with and Josh Hamilton and Watton Goggins. All he, about he at least got a shot to be a big thing. You can make the argument that the problem with him was not that he didn't get a shot. He sort of just didn't pick any good movies. Him, like, not getting Bond just seemed like a derailed. I, and honestly, looking back at it, I would rather have Craig as Bond than him. I'd like, rather have Clive Owen in movies than Daniel Craig, though. I think he's really, I don't know. I think Craig might be a better actor. I like Clive Owen. I, I like, I'm just looking at his career. And you I'm know saying, what? Clive I Owen, liked, really sexy guy. He's a better looking guy than Dan Craig. Yeah, but I like, but Craig in some ways fit the whole, what they were trying to do in that being like the more brutal, more violent bond. Like it, he does fit that more. Like, I don't know. I liked, I've enjoyed, I think more Daniel movies, Daniel Craig is in than I've enjoyed movies that um, Clive Owen is in. Is that a crazy take? Um, I don't think it's a crazy take, but Clive Owen has the best movie. It's Children of Men. <laughs> I don't love Children of Men as much as everyone. It's, yeah, it's bad. I, it's, I like it. No, no, no. I'm not claiming it's bad. I like the film. I, I, I'm just, I, I don't think it is best of that year, groundbreaking, best of the 2000s. Like, that's, it's not in that place for me. I mean, it's like my fifth Crow Owen movie, but still better than the you know, Craig movie. I don't know. Some of those Bond movies are really good. Knives Out is really good. There's some there's some really good stuff that um, Craig is. I don't know. Clive Owen. I want him back. I like him. He's. I, I think he's a good presence. He he's. I don't know. We need more just like British people bringing British. He's also really great. Gosford Park, which I think is the same year as this, right? No, year before. What year is? I thought they're both 2001. No, this is 02. Oh, okay. Um, so, so I guess he was a more of a name than the other actors because he, he, I think he can play that like suspicious sniveling Brit really well that we just need more in movies. Um, what did you think? We talked about Patente, Franco Patente disappearing. What do you think about her in this film? I think she is kind of really, really good as like the counterpart to him because I think that. I think she plays really well off his like learning about everything. She kind of is a really good audience surrogate for like being kind of shocked in some moments, but then like confused in others about the information we're gaining from him as the film goes on. This didn't occur to me until right now. So this wasn't something I was like noticing while watching it. So I don't mean as much of a hit as it may come off. 
I'm starting to think if we really needed like her role at all, I think it might have been better to have a more Joan Allen like role, someone who was more aware, because we don't need two avatars. Because Matt Damon was already playing the eyes for us, the welcome to the world. Now you have two people that are fish out of water and experiencing it. They don't know if it was really necessary. And then maybe, because I did find something lacking about her character. I, I felt like it was unnecessary, but I couldn't put my finger on why we're watching it. Now I, I, I think I got to it. It's just, it's just unneeded. Okay, I'm going to give you uh, those two reasons I think that she's in the movie. One, she's one of the very few characters besides Bourne to come from the novel. She's one of the very few uh, instances to come from the novel. And I do think in this film, they tried to do a little bit more than they stick closer to the novel than they did the other ones. They obviously throw out most of the plot. And I think secondly, you're also talking about a movie made in 2002. I think if you make a 2000, I think if you make this movie in 2012, you probably don't need the love interest as much as you do in 2002. I think she's there purely to give motivation to him in the future movies. I think because they fridge her in the second movie in Supremacy at the beginning. And she's, I think they primarily developed that relationship to give him motivation to keep causing chaos and cause shit. And that's it's, her only purpose. I actually disagree because I don't think that they, they, I don't think they get rid of her to make him cause more chaos. I think in some ways she's actually like, I mean, in some ways, it's arguably worse because she becomes sort of like the good part of him that makes him drive for learning about his past so he can get out completely rather than just like trying to burn everything to the ground. Yeah, there's a little bit of vengeance to it because there's a lot of him going, did you kill her or other things? Like, well, yeah. But... Um, let's see. Let's talk about, okay, car chase. This movie has a great car chase that really yeah, takes advantage of Paris. All car chases should be small cars. It's it so great because it means that you can drive cars. And then in other movies, they do the dirt bikes up. And I love the fact that they do car chases in weird environments. Like I find car chases in like tight quarters in cities on like yeah. weird pathways, really interesting. And they do this really well in the Bourne franchise starting here. They do this long car chase through Paris, which features like her little tiny car, her little tiny European car driving up and down like side streets and downstairs and stuff. And it's just a great set piece in the middle of the film. I don't know how much time you have spent in Europe. I did take a trip to Paris and to Rome and some of the other cities in Italy, France stuff. Roads are fucking insane. And that's like, they're just so tight. Everything is so, you know, snug in a way that that's what makes car chases like this. And I would say Ronan is another one. Take a European yeah. car chases that just make it like so much more exciting. You have to have the small cars to go through these tight ass roads. But, uh, um, I think there's a, contain, a contained quality that comes to that. It's like a car chase on a highway would be the most least in, or the least interesting thing possible because there's like so much space you're kind of just going straight. But then the constant turning and, and the chaos of everything being kind of close together really adds to it. And it kind of allows you to continue the narrative of like showing how intelligent Bourne is. It's not just put his foot down and go as fast as possible and smash into stuff. Yeah, It's really more like he's trying to figure out how to lose people and he uses like how much of a maze an old city is I mean, boston is very similar if you do car chase in boston because all the streets are made for horses you have all these weird streets that don't make any sense in the modern days because these aren't modern cities they were these were cities that were built when people were walking around and riding horses and like taking advantage of that i think makes really really cool set pieces this is when i'm probably mixing up the boring movies um but I know at some point there's some great backing up and, and reverse driving to me in action movies just like always works when they're driving to, through the Ooh. mirror. Was it this one or that? I don't, I'm, I'm Is this or supremacy? 
I think it might be supremacy. I don't think it's this one. He does drive a car backwards, which is yeah. pretty cool. Um, yeah, good. Actually, just really good car chases, really good vehicle chases throughout the Bourne franchise. Um, they just do that really well, even into Legacy, where they just do some really cool ones. They have some really cool dirt bike ones, which also, again, I, I think you really start another thing that you get to see really getting um, copied and used in uh, the Daniel Craig Bond films. Um, do you have any other thoughts about the film plot-wise, character-wise? Look, we've talked a lot about this is a little bit less plot-heavy because so much of it is about coming back from the amnesia. I mean, just to go a little bit, the, the thing that kind of nagged me throughout the whole movie, and I don't think they ever tie it up, and they do add, is that the whole conflict is all just a miscommunication, and there's no bigger conflict than that. I think they add to it in the next two movies for sure, because they add the conspiracy of Cox's character in the second movie. Um, you know, they had Blackbriar and that whole Black Ops conspiracy in the third one, but this one doesn't really have a deeper conspiracy. There kind of is that they unveil later, but they focus so hard on not having exposition and just putting you right into the moment that you're really only led that all the action occurs just because they don't know what the other person is doing or understand each other. And it just makes it seem like slight in a way. Like also if they just like listen to each other for like a minute, they'd be like, oh, I actually don't remember shit. And they're like, okay, maybe we can like figure this out. But they are all assuming what Bourne is doing based on thinking that he remembers everything and that he's trying to avoid or hide a secret rather than meeting him where he is and understanding that he's actually just acting out of like getting bonked on the head and running circles. And he's just clueless and uninformed and they could have solved the situation a lot easier if they 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 just made that one connection so it's that one when movies have this one missing piece of information causing everything to happen to or it's a little like irksome to me here's the, here's the thing i think it makes perfect sense considering the structure and, and the, no, no, it's, me, it's not interesting to me see, but i think it works really well though because it is the perfect explanation of military discipline and military systems these systems are all built so that every person is supposed to know what they're doing their call signal their call in their codes at all times so the the idea of like they would never they don't plan for the idea that he could potentially lose his memory and so that's just never even a possibility because it's not within the purview and the structure of the program so i think that that's interesting and it kind of sets this off in a way that like works really effectively and i think that i think if you tried to build a deeper conspiracy in this first film while really the main i think it wouldn't i think it would be it would cloud the story and it would make it somewhat convoluted because i think the so much of the focus of this film is just born learning about who he is because he doesn't know it at the beginning of the film I don't think they need a bigger conspiracy as much as us just learning more about um, Stonehenge Temple program in general. They, they just save everything That's for so long. I think him uncovering the mystery just a little sooner of who he is and what he is might make the convict seem a little more interesting. But it's always kept very bare bones. There's nothing for me to fully connect to or or to even wonder about where it's going next because and I, I do think it makes sense i think the choices and the actions make sense because that's how we will fuck things up i'm sure our agency is working on assumptions <laughs> and communications all the fucking time i just don't think it's a very engaging conflict for storytelling i guess i just disagree fundamentally like i think i think that if they introduced him finding the information earlier it would have felt rushed like i think the fact that they take their time is actually what works so well because i think it would have i don't see where born would have gotten the information you're looking for that would allow him to make the stakes of this higher like to me that just 
that's just the storytelling of something you know is going to be more than one film. And I think the way that they build this into a trilogy is just, I think, really effective and really like in line with like, you know, just really classic trilogies of film history. I think they just do a really good job setting up the different parts of it. You know, the the introduction part, the transition part, and then the conclusion part. I think that just as a trilogy, it's set up really, really well. And I think um, works so effectively because they take their time introducing you to the larger problem um, beyond just like amnesia and trying to find out who you are. Um, any any more final thoughts? Any final thoughts? That's you like you like this film, right? I like the movie. I, that that's just the things that are nagging at me, and I think there's I, I appreciate it as a setup piece. I say I love the you know discovery quality of of the character, and I think the action set pieces really work. There's just a couple of nagging things that make me um like Ultimatum a lot better because they just are able to clean it up a little more. Well, Ultimatum is I think is more complex and deeper, but I think also really is helped by the fact that it has been set up so well by the first two films. It also just like, it's more polished as a film, not just in terms of production design and the stuff they're doing, but also just like, they've clearly, they clearly knew what they were trying to do going in so that they were able to build to Ultimatum being the best part of the trilogy. And I think that- I also think the storytelling gets cleaned up even in Supremacy. I think the I doesn't work as much in Supremacy. I think it's messier looking. I think he, Greengrass is able to polish that a little more by Ultimatum. Mm -hmm. um, as far as his style, I think it's just messier in that. But I think the storytelling in Supremacy is better and more That's emotionally fair. involving. That's fair. This is very bare bones, but I really enjoy yeah. it for that fact. Um, I'm a big born guy. I think Matt Damon is just a fantastic action hero. And I'm... <laughs> Like maybe one of the better ones. Like I said that I like this more than Mission Impossible. I like Jason Bourne more than Ethan Hunt. I think he's a more interesting character. I think he's more human. I think Ethan Hunt is fun and always interesting. Mm -hmm. But even at his best, he always seems like some kind of alien freak that like doesn't fit in the real world in the way that Jason Bourne always does feel like a real person who's just been trained. There's like a there's a there's like a lack of connection. I've never been able to connect emotionally to Ethan Hunt in the way that I can, Jason. But I think especially the first Mission Possible is not trying to exist in the real world. And that's probably why I like more. I think I'm if I'm going into a genre movie, the poppier um, qualities I'm gonna always be more attracted to. It's just a lot more stylistic with what Brian De Palma is doing than what this is doing, which is for some people it isn't for some. I, I that's just where I always veer rather than the grounded qualities of what Borden has. Yeah, I tend to like grounded qualities, especially when it comes to spy and like action thrillers. That to me is more interesting. Um, unless you're truly going, like, unless you're truly going insane, like space stuff, I like a little bit more grounded quality. Nah, I needed Bourne to rip off a Chris Cooper mask by the end of this movie, and then I would have been in. Nah, nah, that would have that would have been <laughs> terrible. Would not have fit the movie. Would have that would have been terrible. It could ruin the tone <laughs> of the film. Um, before we go, let's do a little Bourne film ranking franchise. Let's yeah. do some Bourne movies ranked. Um, I you, kind of already said mine. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start at five because you did not watch. You, this no. is the first time for you. You did not watch. I'm just gonna say really quickly. Five is Jason Bourne. It's boring. It's unneeded. Um, we didn't need to come back to this franchise. I like Damon in it, but I don't really like anything else. And then four is Legacy. Legacy is good. I don't know why people out there like on Letterbox. It has a negative. It has a negative rating. It has like a two point nine average rating. It's a fun movie. Uh, I get it's not and comparative. I get it's not Matt Damon, but I think Jeremy Renner's still fun. It's a still fun film. Who please stop hating on Rachel Weisz. She's awesome. Um, do not hate Rachel Weisz films. Um, and then I think that we're gonna have very similar, which is that it's supremacy, then identity, then ultimatum. Supremacy is just kind of messy at times. It feels 
it feels so much like a transition between the two films that I think in some ways its purpose is to service the other two films rather than to be its own film. And that's why it struggles at times. Identity is more bare bones. Ultimatum is more polished. Yeah, I am. I didn't watch the later two. And I guess we should express that for the, our, our audience at first that this was all blind watches for me. I watched these for the first time this week, all three of them. Um, just not too interested as a teenager in action movies. I was a weird teenager. I still loved Rocky and Bullwinkle and didn't care about the board movies. Uh, Let's be clear. Zach is a weird adult now. <laughs> I, probably watched many, I probably watched many adventures of Winnie the Pooh like eight times from the age of 14 to 18. I'm like, part, of, part of my soul died watching Zach give ratings to these films that were lower than the animated Cinderella film. Which I don't think oh is that God. great. Cinderella fucking rules. Also, Theo is all about it. It's Theo fun. did not like Alice in Wonderland. Um, he just like shouted no at random times during that just for me to change it back to Sesame Street or something. Just no. Why are we watching Alice in Wonderland? I didn't get it. It's a weird movie. Cinderella. There's a lot of birds in Cinderella, so he was all about that. All right. Um. Anyways, so I am um, supremacy at three. I have identity at two. Ultimatum at one. I do have um. I think the same rating for Identity and Ultimatum. But that was Identity actually originally gave three and a half. I don't know if you catch this and how much you pitched. I did, it. I did touch it. I did catch it. Okay, but I, I, I often change my reviews within 24 hours, especially after watching Supremacy is when I changed my Identity review, mm. my ranking. Um, just thinking it was a step up of Supremacy, I said because of the action pieces and because of the world creation that I, I, I often love first movies the most because I think just the establishment of the world is usually what I'm more um, attracted to. But Ultimatum, I do think, is the refined version of this. And it's also a perspective shift. It's much more from the agency's point of view, and it's much more procedural that I just find very engaging. So even though I have them at the same rating, I would say Identity is a soft four, and Ultimatum is a high four, and easily could have been a four and a half. See, I have Legacy and Supremacy at the same rating, then Identity, and then... To me, Ultimate is the clear best one. It's in my top five of 2007. I'm a big, big Ultimate guy. I really love that movie. Is Ultimate your favorite Green Grass? Is it, do you like it better than Kevin Phillips? Ooh, that's a tough one. I think so, yeah. I think. I think, yeah. I think that's correct. Um, You're not a Green Grass completist, right? Like, you didn't see Bloody Sunday. Um, I have seen almost all of Green Grasses. I think he's done nine films. I have not seen... Oh, he's done a couple. I don't know. It's hard. Looking. Did you watch his Netflix one? I did not watch Twenty Two July. I'm, I'm meaning to watch it. I just haven't gotten to it yet. But I haven't watched Bloody Sunday. But I mean to watch it. Great. I want to watch Twenty Two July and I want to watch Bloody Sunday. But I have seen the Two Borns, News of the World, Captain Phillips, United Ninety Three, Green Zone, and then Jason Bourne. And yeah, um, I have Bourne has made him slightly ahead of Captain. All right, folks, um, thank you for listening to our episode about the Born Identity, which also, more than uh, the Mission Impossible one, talks about uh, the other movies and fetches. I will say, oh, okay, I'm going to announce this now. I, I've, I've been watching the Mission Impossible movies after we did our ranking at the end of the Mission Impossible episode, and you were like, this is crazy. Um, you're correct. Three is a really great villain performance, but it's kind of a really forgettable movie. Also, I'm going to make a crazy statement. I think the rabbit's foot is the worst central mystery in the entire franchise. I think Mission Impossible's 2, Bellerophon and the, like, the drug <laughs> thing is more interesting as a central like mystery I than the Rabbit's Foot. Because the Rabbit's Foot isn't supposed to make any sense, and I think that's why it works. It's I just think, a fun I, name. 
I actually She's really dig Mission Impossible 2's central thing. I just wish they stopped doing all the dumb stuff with like the random shots of like birds and stuff. That stuff is just like that stuff I could do without. But I really do actually like that central mystery. That's Sean Roo for you. You gotta have birds. Theo would love it. You really don't. But yes, I would agree. Mission Impossible 3 is really overrated. It's a great uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. I think it's properly rated, but anyone who tries to act like it's a top two Mission Impossible needs to stop. Well, I think some people do, but I think that like it also, first off, it looks like a TV show. It acts like a TV show. Yes. Um, even from like they do the... the Abrams was hot off of Alias. Well, they literally do the opening. They do the TV thing where the opening scene is like the end of the film and then they flash back. It's also like kind of nonsense and has a really stupid ending that feels like JJ wants to end the franchise with him walking off with his wife. It's it's a very weird movie. Honestly, it makes the franchise continued after that. It, I know, it, feels like that movie, it seems like a franchise killer. It feels like, well, I don't know if it seems like, if to me, it feels like an end of a franchise. Like the ending just seems so like fine. But I guess like, you know, they brought back, they brought back dumber franchises in other ways. I'm looking at you horror franchises. You guys come back from the graves like 40 times. Um, I think, yeah, even though three's not bad, I just think like kind of underwhelming and not amateurish, but so TV is after a complete failure. So not being able to overcome from two, I thought would have. Well, I think I think the thing you see is they take a really long time between John Woo and that one, and they take a really long time between three and four. Like then once you get McCoy, though, it's time to start rolling them out. Well, but that's when they start landing just consistently. Um, I'm excited to continue. I haven't watched four yet. I will update you guys going forward. Ah, with that being said, thank you for listening to our episode about the Bourne Identity. Drop comments, drop likes, drop subscribes, do whatever you want, share us with a friend, um, make your entire family download us. Um, we would like this. Um, unless it will like, hurt your family. If it like mildly damage your relationship with your family, we want you to do it. But if it like completely damage your relationship with your family, you, like, you can only you can flip a coin or something. Um, next week, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about a movie that is very much inspired by Bourne, which is Casino Royale. Um, and I will talk about why we made the choice to talk about the Daniel Craig Casino Royale for the spy uh, movie starters compared to a bunch of other films in the Bond franchise, including Doctor No would be like the obvious one. But I'll explain why, um, uh, as, the, as the Bond expert of the two of us, I thought that was the best choice um, beyond just it being a really great film. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Zach. We will see you all next week. Peace out.